Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we speak with scientist Dr. Carolyn Davis. Dr. Davis is a pioneer in the academic study of food addiction, researching in the 1990s when most people were studying aberrant eating from purely an eating disorder model. Dr. Davis was already connecting the dots of food addiction from within her eating disorder research. Dr. Davis is an established academic with a strong track record in the areas of psychobiological risk factors of obesity and disordered eating, as seen by her numerous publications in high-quality journals and many international conferences. She was one of the first to examine the role of brain reward mechanisms in the regulation of appetite and overeating. Dr. Davis is a professor emeritus in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences and was also cross-appointed to the psychology program at York University in Toronto. Canada. In addition, she had an affiliate scientist position at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health and in the Department of Psychiatry, University of Toronto. We at Food Junkies are particularly interested in showcasing her early work in the food addiction field and how her early concepts present the building blocks of what we know today about the field of food addiction. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you, Vera. Nice to be here. Yes. Thank you for coming to speak with us. So, You have an interesting story about how you got into the field of food addiction. I'm interested in knowing how you got into the field of eating disorders. There you were working in eating disorders, and then you found yourself looking at food addiction. So can you tell us a little bit about how what happened? This was in the 1990s when there was no discussion about food addiction. If I could just take one minute to give you a wee bit of background, which is that my graduate work was in, in psychology, and it was about as far from clinical psychology as you can get. So I was working in a field that was then called experimental psychology. And I was interested in individual differences in the biological basis of personality and temperament. I did a postdoc in that field as well. And then I was looking for a job. (laughs) I had three children and a husband. And so I couldn't move away. And York University had a job opening in the field of physical education, which it was then called. And they were looking for a sports psychologist. And I was not that. But they took a chance on me, and I think they thought, being a bunch of men, that they could turn me into a sports psychologist. And very soon in my career, which started in, uh, I guess I was hired in 86, the chair, through his connections, got me some money to do an annotated bibliography on a field that was then, or an area of sport that was called, they called non-conventional sports injury. And under that umbrella was eating disorders, which are very prevalent in athletes, and in drug enhancement, in performance enhancing activities. And that was like I'd found religion. I was so 
mesmerized by the work in anorexia nervosa. At the time, I was an avid runner, and that was probably what sparked it. And there were three areas that were not talking to each other. There were the sports psychologists who noted the, the high prevalence of eating disorders, anorexia in athletes. There were the physiologists, the rat psychologists, who were in the 60s, really, discovered a fascinating phenomenon, more or less by accident, I think, that if you restrict the food intake of rodents, they start running a lot on their activity wheels. And that becomes, over time, a self-perpetuating phenomenon where they literally run themselves to death. And then there were the clinicians, mostly male psychiatrists at that time, who thought that anorexia was all about body image, largely, and sociocultural influences. And they weren't talking to each other. So I, that was my entree into the study of anorexia, trying to look at mechanisms for this phenomenon where starvation induces hyperactivity. That is that, interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that before, that starvation would lead rats to run harder to well, their death. And in the original experiments, they literally ran themselves to death. If you put your evolutionary hat on, it makes perfect sense. Because if there's food shortage in the environment, if you do nothing because you just stop, you're starving, you just get tired and you curl up, you're going to die for sure. But if you become motivated to seek food, you might die anyway, but at least you have a fighting chance of finding food. Yeah. And the opposite is true that when rats are sated, they don't run very much on their activity. And we see the same thing in the human condition that people go on diets and what dieting does if we're energy depleted we feel quite energized for a while and that's a clinical phenomenon where you know these patients who decide to go on a diet they get they feel great at first they go to the gym all the time and eventually the patients that i saw were all hospitalized and i heard over and over again i simply can't stop when I hear exactly what you're talking about, athletes who don't eat and then feel great, they usually yes. attribute that to the fact that they're burning ketones, which are fat burning, makes people feel more energetic. So that's actually a physiological explanation, but you were looking at the psychological. I was looking at mechanisms. I've always wondered why these things are so persistent and they, they're across animals and they're across people. There's got to be some evolutionary importance to that. And yeah. the important behavior is that that sustain a species requires the access to food. And you're not going to go to sleep when you're starving. People do extraordinary things to get resources. So I believe, I think it's understood that there are other hormonal things that take place. We increase endorphins when we're starving, and yes. that makes even brown lettuce tastes good if you're if you so we lower the threshold of palatability when we're starving so that all made sense and then the patients themselves would say all the clinicians think this is about body image but it's not about body image anymore it's because i can't stop what i'm doing and could we almost say not only that they couldn't stop, but they were actually getting high? Because you mentioned endorphins and you mentioned people feeling good. Like it's not just they can't stop, but they like what they're feeling. They feel good for a while, Vera, but eventually they crash and burn, yeah. just like the animals do. You can only go on running on empty for so long, but 
it becomes a behavior that's driven. The patients were, would frequently tell me that they were crying and running outside in the winter and, and their tears were turning into icicles and they couldn't stop what they were doing. It, it was free will seemed to have disappeared. And is it that kind of behavior is what made you think that this might be an addictive as opposed well, to... Well, after, yes, that's interesting because after almost 15 years and I made wonderful connections in my life, two, two Kennedys, one did Kennedy at Toronto General and we became collaborators for a number of years. And every time I thought I understood that disorder, I would, everything would just crumble. And all my theories and all my feelings of understanding disappeared. And I remember saying to somebody once, oh, just when I just thought that I understood this, it all fell away. And this person said to me, Caroline, nobody understands this disorder. It defies understanding. So after so many years of doing this, I was on a plane. I remember it so distinctly. It was an epiphany, really. And I was reading a magazine. I had let myself not look at the academic journal papers that I always took with me. And I was reading a magazine. I don't know if it was Time magazine or what. And there was a headline story about addiction right. and about the role of dopamine and all the stuff that had happened. Dopamine was discovered in the 50s, just its role in addiction and so on. And again, I was mesmerized. And I thought, maybe that's it. Maybe they're addicted. And I wasn't the first person who thought that. But a few people were out there thinking that, saying that we might be becoming addicted on the neurotransmitters that are being enhanced with starvation and with exercise. And that it's a cycle that's almost impossible to break willingly. Sometimes it got broken because they got too sick to do anything. But um, so what's interesting with your story so far is that you had your aha moment in the area of starvation and anorexia, whereas most of us have had the aha moment with bulimia or binge eating or yes. eating sugar but you came from the which just shows that there is a it is such a complex area this whole concept of food addiction and i got pragmatic because around that time when i had this epiphany i thought in some ways it almost is a better model coming from a different angle a better model for obesity and that was the time where everything was about obesity the funding agencies the government were putting a lot of money into obesity research and i kind of because of course i had looked at anorexia patients with both it wasn't hard to make that switch to looking at thinking of overeating as being a potentially addictive behavior and I was lucky because I was in the right place at the right time. I got some nice grant money from CIHR and other sources and um, made collaborative links because I really was dying to look at something to do with the brain that I, as a psychologist, could do. We only had sort of secondary ways, non-direct ways of looking at the brain. We didn't have brain imaging readily available. So I made connections with Jim Kennedy, who runs the genetics lab there. And then for the next long period, we collaborated. And he was the geneticist, but I could translate some of the genetic findings into behavior and personality and eating and so on. So that was, the switch was pragmatic, I have to confess. But it's a good model, I think, for overeating too. Tell us about how Ashley Gearhart, can you tell us about that? 
she was a grad student at Yale at the time with Kelly Brownell, and they developed together, and I think it was part of her dissertation, the food addiction scale. So I was very aware of her work and of the scale, and we began to use that in our research. It wasn't until we were both invited, actually, I think she was part of the organizing committee of a, I don't know what you would call it, it was a retreat, really, in Seattle, one of the islands off Seattle, and they had a sort of food addiction workshop, and they invited various people. It was fascinating, fascinating. And Ashley introduced herself to me, and she told me that she knew me because of I had given her tutorials at Oxford before she went into grad school, and that she was very interested in that idea. We knew of each other indirectly. I guess I knew her, but I didn't know that Ashley Gerhardt was that student that I had given tutorials to. This is a quote in the the APA Class Act 2011. Gerhardt began wondering whether food addiction can be addictive when, as an undergraduate, she heard Carolyn Davis, a professor at York University and Oxford University, discuss whether eating behaviors might share similarities with addictive behaviors. See, you are the start for Ashley Gearhart, who is a key researcher in the field now. She said, I found the idea fabulously interesting. It was a field that had not really evolved. It was, you can imagine, it was as interesting for me as to, to hear that when she told me this at the conference. That, And I, we've only, I think we've only published a couple of things together and our research, we weren't working on the same sort of thing. She's a clinical psychologist and I'm not, but we've always been in touch and she's, she invited me to give talks at a seminar she was organizing and so on. And I just adore her work and she's a lovely person and I'm happy that she's the mother of two little boys now and she seems to have got her life is just, you know, everything yeah, and, is going. And, and just, just while we're mentioning her, I don't know if you saw the article that just came out in January, a poll that she published about where she said the prevalence of addiction to highly processed foods in adults over 50 is... One in eight, one in eight or 13%. Wow. Yeah. So you were talking about this in the 90s, 80s, and now we're starting to recognize it in 2023, how prevalent it is. I wasn't the first person that thought of this, but most of the prior people had that insight from their clinical experiences. And I came from a, maybe more from a biological perspective about the possibilities that it could be. So let's talk about the academic perspective. You're talking about introducing the addiction model for aberrant eating. How did you sort that out from an eating disorder model to an addiction model? Like how do you see it as a continuum? Tell us where you went with that. You started to connect the dots, and then what did you do with that? The first thing I had to do after that magazine on the airplane was I had to learn something about addiction because I knew nothing about addiction. We all know a a bit about it clinically or anecdotally, but I didn't know about the brain, and it's always been brain physiology, biology that I've been interested in. So I spent quite a bit of time just trying to understand addiction and reading. And some of it was above my head and I had to educate myself in a lot of the terminology. And I became very interested in the role, actually in everything pleasurable. And probably I was talking about the same sort of things, but not knowing the brain structures way back when I was interested in the biological basis of personality traits. But that's when I became very interested in the uh, the common reward pathway and the mesoquinone. 
cortical limbic pathway that is so fundamentally central to all of human behavior, really, and and about its role in, in evolution and survival and fitness and reproductive success and so on, and eating, of course, because that's fundamental to surviving as a species. It was a theoretical model that I wasn't ever going to be doing brain research, so I had to approach it from markers of brain activity. So we looked at behaviors, and again, we had the genetic markers, which was that field was burgeoning during that period too, the human genome was being mapped. And uh, so I approached it that way from a theory and then down looking for evidence. Yeah. So there's a strong argument that eating disorders is a form of addiction and that the behaviors that define eating disorders and substance abuses are very similar. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on where you were going with that? Because you were one of the first people to make this connection. I guess you think about I, I guess you move from the biological evidence into the experience or let me use an example. So there was a lot of evidence, clinical, preclinical research always predates the clinical work that when you overtax the brain reward pathway, it's like everything. It's if we get too cold, we shiver and that warms us up. We have adaptations to moving outside our comfort zone. And I, with my students, I always talked about the comfort zone. We can have things impinge on us within a range that we can still remain healthy, but we have adaptations like shivering and sweating and panting when we can't get a breath and all of those things. Our brain functions in the same sort of way. So when you overtax, let's say the common reward pathway, with things that stimulate it. And those are mostly things historically, before we got too clever for our own good, historically were things that were good for us. The primers are food and sexual activity. We can never survive if we don't if we don't reproduce and if we don't stay healthy enough with food and drink, and by drink I mean water or something. And those things become pleasing to us and we need to do them and we want them and so on. But if we stimulate our brain in the pleasure centers beyond what's comfortable, we can stretch the elastic a little bit. But if we stretch it too much, then the brain neuro adapts. And there was a whole body of evidence that the the receptors in the common reward pathway, let's say the dopamine receptors, that's just one example, all kinds of neuroadaptations that I don't know about, then they downregulate as a way of saying, I can't stop what's coming in, but I can protect myself, me, the little neuron, by shutting down. And I'm like putting on earphones or earmuffs when you don't want to hear noise. And so the signal dampens down, but the other part of our brain, the our emotional brain, says, ah, what you just did is good. That felt really good. It must be healthy for it must be good for me. So I'm going to remember it. And two counter activities occur in the brain. I'm making it very simple, but yes, so this yes. is a conceptual brain that the liking diminishes because the receptors, the, the system is downregulated, but the other part of our brain says, come on, we want more of this. And a way that can work is also when our executive functions also diminish. So we no longer can put the brakes on as easily. So part of our brain is putting the gas pedal on, saying, I want this. And the brake system is quite weak. 
And that's how I began to see it. And then that neuroadaptation model that you're talking about, when I read that, I thought this really explains well. So you tell me if I'm jumping the gun here, but this really explains well the sort of progression of addiction from early mm-hmm. days to later days. Early days, you still have the liking. There's that sense of, oh, I really like this. I'm going to continue. And then as you're more and more exposed, which would now not be early stages of food addiction, but more yes. middle stages, you're starting to downregulate and no longer feel, getting the full effect of, but the wanting is enhanced. That's what we see. And then in the later yeah. stages of food addiction, where the person doesn't have any more, but all they ha- it's all want. It's mm-hmm. all hope that it's going to be better. And really that, I didn't know anything about addictions, but we've all been in touch with people who are addicts and they talk about, and we use that word so loosely, don't we? I'm completely addicted to yeah. whatever. And, but we know what it means. And it is like that. I used to run a lot. And I re- remember running with a guy who said, I can't have one beer. And I said, what do you mean you can't have one beer? Of course you can. And he said, no, I can't because if I have one beer, then I want to drink the whole case. And that's just, we hear that all the time. So that is a, that's a clinical feature of anything that we really are overdoing. And when we decide we want to stop it, we can't. And it, it was that way with cigarettes back in, I don't know, was it the 70s, the 80s, when they really, the links between lung cancer and smoking were so prevalent and people tried to stop and they couldn't. Nobody thought of cigarette smoking as addictive because you didn't get high from having a cigarette but it was only when people tried to stop that's one of the hardest things i gather to to give up so you would agree then that there is a continuum right absolutely could you make the argument because you started with eating disorders so you looked at the anorexic first and then the overeating that in fact eating disorder is a early stage or are you could it be a distinct stage because this is an area that we today are continually trying to conceptualize is it the same is it part of the continuum what's your thoughts I do believe it's a continuum. Any addiction is a continuum. Some very potent substances, some people get hooked on very quickly. And we always think of cocaine and amphetamines and so on. But actually, I understand from people that work in that field that it's still a relatively small proportion of the people that get hooked. And maybe because there's stigma and it's illegal and it's expensive and so on, but it is a completely different thing. It's there all the time. It's hard to escape it. It's. I was going to say it's not stigmatized, but I suppose it is. I suppose people that are overweight or heavier than they want to be, they, they maybe they do feel some stigma about that. But I think food is just very different because it can't. You can't escape it the same way as you can other things. Hey, food junkies, listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Molly Vera and I are so excited to share our upcoming Sweet Sobriety Special Speaker and Workshop Extravaganza with you. This four-day food addiction conference is going to be the recovery retreat you just can't beat as Sweet Sobriety takes over Toronto. Friday, we're going to have a special Sweet Sobriety Soiree. This will be an exclusive event for our Sweet Sobriety group coaching members to hang out with your Food Junkies team. And this will run from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. We have Sensational Saturday at the Residence and Conference Center in downtown Toronto at 80 Cooper Street. 
That day, we'll have Sandra Ilya speaking on aligning your sales to recovery, thinking action words. Sophie Rowland will speak on insulin resistance in the brain, how it affects our eating behaviors. Dr. Evelyn Roy will share how to level up your metabolic health and food addiction recovery. Our own Dr. Vera Tarman will be speaking on, am I abstinent enough? Besides sugar, let's explore alcohol and cannabis. And finally, Dr. Amy Reichelt will be speaking on the neuroscience of sugar and food addiction. On Super Speaker Sunday, the workshops will be held at the 519 Community Center Ballroom. On Sunday, we'll have Pamela McCuse speak on getting into the readiness mindset. Jennifer Lindo Crank will be speaking on turning information into transformation, all about neuroplasticity. Rachel Murray will be speaking on craving control navigating the complex relationship between women's hormones and sugar. And finally, Victoria Hamill will be speaking and doing a group hypnotherapy session for a recovery mindset. On Maintenance Monday, we will start with group coaching, then we'll have a workshop from Cynthia and she'll be doing the genogram. Then we're going to have a group activity in the afternoon called Mindful Art Practice and this will be hosted by our own Deb Reynolds. And then it will be followed by an Enneagram workshop with Bethany Mazaru. And finally, we're going to finish the day with somatic experiencing with me. And finally, on our last day, Treatment Tuesday, we're going to do some group coaching. Molly Painshop will be teaching on adaptive coping mechanisms. We're going to have a workshop on breaking stuff. And uh, then we're going to wrap up the day with a workshop on courage, commitment, and change that Clarissa, Molly, and Bethany will be hosting. And then our Ask Us Anything, Get to Know Your Hosts, Bethany, Clarissa, Molly. So 5 p.m., we're going to do our closing ceremonies. And where is all this all held? In Toronto, Canada, when October 21st to 24th. And the cost is $150 U.S. for individual event days and $4.99 US for the entire recovery retreat. Can't wait to see you there. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. Just going back to your origins in the eating disorder field, do you feel that it would be fair to say that eating disorders is part of that continuum or when you say eating disorders you mean anorexia nervosa yeah and, and also binge eating disorder yeah basically eating disorder from a model that's more of a psychological model it's not just about the food in fact the food is just a symptom of something else okay let's take anorexia i know more okay. about that except that a lot of patients with anorexia are also bulimic I one, one theory that I have, because so many patients told me this, is that if we just look at fundamental temperament and personality and so on, so many patients that were severely anorectic, because I only saw the ones that were hospitalized. So that was a tertiary care statute. Those are very sick men and women. They said there are those people that love to eat and those people that eat to live. And I think that an anorectic is a person typically, or somebody who becomes anorectic, is a person for whom food isn't such a strong motivator. 
and it's easy for them to give it up. And there are so many rewards for them to do that. If they're in sports, there are performance rewards. If they're young women in society, there are all kinds of, we all know the social rewards of being thin for women. And I think that those people that eventually stay thin but binge and purge have a different profile. I think they tend to be more rewarded by food, but they're still striving for the social rewards of being thin. And they discover this very dangerous way of doing that, and that is to vomit or use laxatives or or whatever. But it, again, I think it exists on a continuum. You don't go on one diet and become an anorectic. You go on a diet and it's reinforcing and you can do it. And so many patients would say to me, you know, we all went on a diet one summer and I was the only one that kept stuck to it because it seemed easier for them. Mostly we don't want to starve and mostly people fight to eat. Their brain fights to get them to eat. You had some thoughts at some point about people choosing food. Why is it that some people choose food and why is it that some people choose cigarettes or drugs? Did you want to say anything about that? I'd be happy to. I don't know that we could ever say it's a one-to-one. It isn't a one-to-one relationship with any of them. Why do you choose something? Maybe cost is involved. Maybe family exposure is involved, social tolerance for certain things, availability. And then those are all the social factors. But then I think certain drugs work for certain people better. If you're an anxious person prone to anxiety, you're probably not going to take speed because we did give methylphenidate, uh, Ritalin, to patients experimentally. These were patients who didn't have They didn't have any diagnosed ADHD or whatever. And it was just fascinating that the different reactions, some people absolutely loved it and they were so productive and they more focused and so on. And other people really didn't like it at all because they got paranoid and they felt agitated. And I think we self-medicate with different pharmacological agents the same way as you as a doctor might prescribe different things for the underlying affective conditions that a person has. So I think there are a whole plethora of reasons that people choose. You've heard this, I'm sure, yourself, that the People say that food is the good girl's drug. And alcohol is the bad boy's drug. At least it was yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Until the so, industry changed the, the image of alcohol to be more favorable for women. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't know that this is, I, I'm not working in the field anymore. And But what do you think about these drugs now that every other person you hear about is taking Ozempic or, or one of the varieties? Is this relevant to your to the field of food addiction? Yeah, there's some interesting things coming out with the new GLP-1s talk that it might actually help addictive behavior itself. And I'm interested in what the mechanism behind that is. But I have to say that the prevalence of use right now, it's widely overprescribed and it's being used as a pill with the promise that you can eat food and lose weight. I don't know how to say this. I'm a little bit worried because it's being used at the expense of other options. I think it might be a useful bridge for some people. There are other concerns about long-term side effects. Who knows what will happen in a year or two if a person develops tolerance to it 
Yes. It's in the honeymoon phase right now. Yeah. It's in the honeymoon phase. Well, I know people, I know people that I've just bumped into who have been taking the last 40 pounds. It's almost, it is like a wonder drug that's probably has obese potential like anything. Yeah. They lose 40 pounds and then they have to be on it forever or else they'll gain it back. Yes. Who knows what will happen in a couple of years when tolerance develops? Will they gain it yes. back? Then? I don't know. And by the way, it's only 40 pounds. If you change the diet, you can lose a hundred pounds. Yes. Despite of the alternative which is much more dramatic. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you, thank you. I know that's a sidebar. So you were writing about this in the 90s. What kind of response did you have from people when you were talking about this? Because the eating disorder model then was very prevalent. And the idea even today of suggesting that eating disorders may even be partly seen as an addiction is controversial. Yes. What was it like then to get a response? I never had trouble publishing, but maybe it was the sort of journals that I submitted to. There were a few very noisy detractors, and I won't name them. But I always think that they had a vested interest. In in one case, it, it was a psychiatrist and a popular proponent of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think that just didn't mesh with his ideas. There have been other detractors as well. And some of those I find are easy to dismiss because some of them never worked in the field and never worked in the clinical field of addiction. So I found that odd. But what always surprised me, Vera, was that, yes, there were the noisy detractors who wrote about this in the popular press, perhaps more than in the academic press. But if you ask the general population, what do you think about food addiction? They'd say, absolutely, food is addictive. That was, I won't say it was comforting because I was never discomforted by what I thought as an academic and probably as a physician. You're used to people disagreeing because we don't all think the same way and we have different viewpoints. But the fact that the public thought that it, of course, they understood that was always comforting to me. And I never worried about the noisy detractors. Did you have any academic champions, people who said, oh, it's about time, we're saying it now, but what about then? I had collaborators who were supportive, the people at CAMH, they were all psychiatrists, but they were supportive. I was getting grant money. I don't think that it's an evil concept, and it has a very firm biological evidence-based support. When I met you a couple of years ago, actually just before COVID, I know that you had some graduate students doing some work in food addiction. So it obviously something that you continued with at some level. Where do you see the academic field of food addiction going? What are some questions that you would like to see being asked? I think I think that the field is not going is not going to go away and it's garnering more and more support. You only have to look at the publications. I, in one paper, and others have also plotted the number of publications across the years, where in the year 2000, I don't know that there were any, and then hundreds now of papers. I think some people object to the word addiction, but then we tend to use it in all kinds of other ways. I know the DSM never used it till its final version. I think we they had other names for it, but I think we're going to understand how to treat it better. That's after all should be the goal, shouldn't it, of how to help people overcome this. And I think we've had changes. I don't know. I, food marketing isn't my field, but I think there's some 
movement in that direction of trying to reduce the sugar content. In terms of the names, we are actually at a stage right now of trying to decide what should we call this? Should we call it sugar addiction, food addiction, processed food addiction, ultra processed food addiction? What do you think we should call it? I don't know. I think it's a dilemma just like you say. Food is the easiest thing and everybody knows what you mean by that. Everybody knows it's not a pair, an addiction to pears or I suppose it could be if you have some kind of an obsessive attachment, I don't know. But I can't think of anything that isn't a big mouthful. I think we know what food addiction means in the same way as we know what gambling means. Gambling is not a cool word either, but we know that it encompasses, it doesn't probably mean buying the odd lottery ticket. It means since you started off in the field, from the anorexic point of view, there's no ultra-processed food dilemma happening there. This was actually a physiological response to starving that made yes. a person feel more energetic. So it seems to me that ultra-processed food addiction wouldn't capture what you're talking about. Somebody, I can't remember who they were, wrote a very compelling article, or maybe it was even a book, about the biology of both starvation as an addictive behavior. And it was based on the opiate pathways, so that when we starve or when we exercise, our body secretes endorphins. They have two purposes. One, they help reduce the pain of exercise, the pain of a starvation, but they also are signals to our body, you need to eat, you want to eat, that's what the endorphins do too. They drive appetite in the same way as the dopamine system downregulates when you overactivate it. The argument is that the opiate system downregulates when you overtax it as you do with starving and with exercise, and they foster each other so that we become, it's the same downregulation, you're liking it more, you're liking it less and less. These people that were exercising, the patients, the stories they told you made you weep, but they couldn't stop doing it. The drive was there because there was some evolutionary switch got flipped and what we want to do naturally and in moderation becomes compulsive. And that's the nature of it, isn't it? We have no breaks anymore and the activities become compulsive. And that really happens without our without our we can't fix that really unless we somehow stop the activity you were talking about the compulsion and how like obviously that's the piece of addiction that is prevalent in both whether it's anorexia and the compulsion to move or addiction and the compulsive to use some substance even though you don't Mm -hmm. want to like and i think when i'm actually sitting on the committee that's looking at what do we call this thing and i think our issue is that we need to, at least with ultra processed food, we can identify what is the active ingredient, right? Because with gambling, they would say that it's more of like a behavioral addiction. And with food addiction, we're saying it's a substance use disorder. It's probably both, isn't it? Because Gambling is an activity, but that activity is stimulating brain reward mechanisms Yeah, uh, in the same way as if you're snorting cocaine. You're taking something into your body more directly and it's a substance, but an activity, they're both targeting, they're all targeting the same thing. There's not some something outside that's doing it. It's activating our brain. And yeah. that's what makes it so complex, right? It, because obviously these instruments would like to nail it down to either a substance use disorder or a behavioral addiction. And 
So we're trying to figure out which will be more generally accepted. And at least if we think about the active ingredient in alcohol, it's ethanol. And so we need to think about what is the active ingredient in ultra-processed food, which then could be if we use the NOVA classification scale, this combination of like salts that are fats and carbohydrates and salt that is not found in nature anywhere else and goes through a processing. Some have said, I think accurately, and when you said alcohol and and alcohol and sugar are congruent, aren't they? Because one is Mm -hmm. just the fermented form of the other. And that when we have salted caramel ice cream, it's really the sugar that activates the common reward pathway. The other stuff is fine. That puts on the weight, but the sugar is what creates our, our, the possibility of, of, of becoming addicted and gambling. Sure, it's not a substance, but it's a, an activity. Running is an activity. I don't know why we have to put pigeonhole things into different categories. The source, yes, it's either a substance and food is definitely a substance. They all activate the same thing. It's like our brain is not different from our body. You know what I mean? It all comes in a different way. Let's say somebody said, hey, here's a lot of money. Would you supervise some (laughs) students to do another piece of research on food addiction? Where would you focus? What would you do? Yeah, that's a good question because there was COVID and then there was my sabbatical and then there was now a year and a half of retirement. So I I have to say, I'm not probably as familiar with what's being done right now, but I think that fighting over the name is not going to change the trajectory of the research or the opportunity to find solutions. And no, no pun intended, but I think we're just looking around to make something more palatable to the general public by trying to find a name. The DSM didn't like addiction for God knows how many years, and it only came in 2013, 2013, in the latest version. So I don't know. You would know better. What do you think is the that needs the most help? There's definitely a lack of research on withdrawal from food in the food addiction field. Yeah. Oh, okay. That is the missing piece for sure that we have found in reading all the papers and looking for, you know, what we're getting pushback on. I do hear patients talking about if they give up sugar, that they would practically eat the furniture. Like it really is (laughs) a terrible experience. Oh yeah. Clinically, we see it all the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. People that give up cocaine, they just talk about anhedonia, but they don't, they, they just are not so interested in anything. But I gather sugar like alcohol or opiates, and they're really bad physical symptoms too. Yeah. And so when they have switched to a ketogenic diet, they were calling it the keto flu because they were feeling those experiences. But what it wasn't keto flu, it's withdrawal. Yeah, it's withdrawal. Carbohydrate. Since you are retired, what is next for you then? Dare I tell you, being a scientist is about solving puzzles. That's always what I thought. And maybe you find the puzzle, maybe you make the, even make the puzzle, or you find a puzzle that needs solving, and then you spend a lot of time trying to understand something and puzzle solving. And I have, since my retirement, 
reading more and I'm still interested in life, but I love puzzles and I spend some of my leisure time playing duplicate bridge, which is a very, it's a big puzzle game and it attracts nerds that uh, are the Bill Gateses. Now that's a famous nerd, but it attracts nerdy people who like to solve puzzles and who are comfortable with numbers. And when I'm not playing bridge and I can't sleep at night, I do word puzzles. I'm, I still, I think I found a healthy outlet, but yeah. I'm trying to be a little more balanced. I have a whole bunch of grandchildren and children and they, they're lovely. They're puzzles too. And they're, I like spending more time with them than I was able to do when I had a really active career. Retirement scared me, but I've worked longer than the normal retirement age and, and it isn't scary. It's just lovely to wake up with a cup of coffee and know you don't have to be anywhere until it's finished or the word puzzle is finished, whichever comes first. Oh, that's and, so encouraging to hear because I'm getting close to that and I'm terrified to retire. Oh, so thank you for saying that. Don't be frightened. And I think as, I think if you want to continue working, like there was a long period of time I was not ready to retire, but I knew when I was and COVID helped. It helped focus my mind on that I didn't, actually miss it as much as I thought I would miss the act of teaching and so on. So we do have a signature question, if you don't mind answering it. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? A younger version of myself probably wouldn't have believed it because a younger version of myself was before we had this precipitous increase in weight gain and a focus on eating and I think I grew up and heard stories of from my parents and my grandparents about I mean, nobody ever thought that there would be too much food. So it would be hard for me. I, I, it was a, a kind of a revolution uh, and revelation, I guess, that happened at the same time, you know, that, that point where the world went crazy for food and obesity became a threat where before it was almost a value, wasn't it? It meant that you... Yeah. You were affluent enough to have it. But about just about science in general, I think I would say to a younger version of myself, don't worry if it becomes an obsession because anything worth doing, you have to, and doing well, you have to be a bit obsessed about. You have to not want to rest until you've got an answer. I, I give that advice to my grandchildren already. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Carolyn Davis, for all the work that you did early days that I'm hoping you hear us as acknowledging you now in 2023 and for your time in talking about it today. Well, it's, it is a real pleasure, I have to say, Vera. And I think that you and what your team are doing, helping people very successfully, I understand that you're, you're right there as the frontline responders. I was just muddling along with science in the background. Good luck and let me know when you retire. I'll teach you bridge. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. 
You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.